Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you and acknowledge that you are an awesome God. You are the only God, and we worship you this morning. We pray, Lord, that you'd meet with us now as we look at your word together. Challenge us, change us, transform us, we pray, by the living power of your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A week past Friday, as uh, Paul alluded to in the offering, I had the honor of leading the funeral of a man called Tom Seymour, a man who used to be here at this church. In fact, Tom was one of the elders here for many years, um, many years ago. And Tom and his wife had had to move away to the northwest of England, but his family were keen that he'd be buried back here in the family grave in Gosforth. And so we had the funeral service here in the building, and then we had a service, just a a private family service at the graveside uh, after the service here. And it was a very sad occasion. Death is never good. Death is never nice. Nobody wants to lose their husband. Nobody wants to lose their father, uh, mother, sister, relative, friend. Nobody wants to uh, experience death in any shape or form. But despite the sadness and the very real sadness and grief that was really evident on that day, it was a special kind of sadness. There was real grief on show, but it was a different kind of grief to that which you might see at some funerals, and certainly which I've experienced at some funerals. I want to just read some of the words I said at the graveside uh, to the family as we lowered the coffin into the grave. And these are some of the words I said. We're burying Tom's physical body, but Tom's spirit is at this very moment with the Lord Jesus in heaven. We are understandably grieving at this moment, but Tom is rejoicing to finally be with the Savior he loves. We rightly bury Tom's body with dignity and respect and the hope and certainty of the resurrection, but Tom is no longer here. Tom is with Jesus. And one day, if we have trusted in Jesus, we will be reunited with Tom as we too are changed and transformed into the likeness of Jesus when he comes again. Paul writes these words, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We do grieve, but our grief is not like the grief people face when they have no hope. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus and in the resurrection of the dead that he will bring about. And that was a a bit of what I said to the family as we stood around a grave as we lowered Tom's coffin into his grave. There was real grief at the graveside, but it was a different kind of grief because we knew that Tom was at that very moment absent from the body and present with the Lord, even as we were at that very moment burying his body. And the words of the Apostle Paul that I quoted in that little uh, message to the family there are the very words that we're going to look at this morning in our passage from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. As we've been studying over the last few weeks as a church, we've been looking through the book or this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, a city in northern Greece. Paul had preached there on, his, on one of his missionary journeys. Lots of people had responded to his message, had become Christians, had surrendered their lives to Jesus, put their faith and trust in him. And this new church had been started. But then after probably just three or four weeks, Paul had had to flee for his life because of persecution. He left that church, he had no choice, but he had to leave that church on their own, this new group of Christians fending for themselves, giving them a a few weeks of intense teaching and instruction before he'd left, but that was all he'd been able to do. And so now he was writing this letter to give them further instructions and to elaborate on things that perhaps he hadn't been able to go into detail as he would have liked to have done. And one of the things he needed to deal with was was what had happened to those in the church in Thessalonica who had died since they'd become Christians. Since Paul had been there, some of the people who had believed in Jesus, had surrendered their lives to him and had begun to live for Jesus, some of them had died. 
probably and, and possibly through persecution. This church was being persecuted. And so these folks who had died, probably there's a good chance that, that most of them had been put to death through the persecution that they were facing. And so the remaining Christians in Thessalonica were confused about what had happened to them. They believed in eternal life. They believed that these people had gone to heaven. They believed that Jesus was coming again. Paul had taught them all of these kind of things. But they were obviously, from the sense of the letter, a little bit unclear as to how all this was going to work out. And they were worried, I think, get the sense in which perhaps they were worried about the fact that these uh, friends of theirs, that, that their church family, some of them had died since Paul had preached there. And they were worried that maybe in some way they were going to lose out or, or have some kind of second-rate experience uh, that they were going to get or that, or that they weren't going to get. So Paul wanted to put their minds at ease. He wanted to clear things up. He wanted to clear things up for them so that they wouldn't be confused or worried. And, and God, by the power of his Spirit, oversaw this as Paul writes, so that we too today uh, are instructed and get to know a little bit more about what happens when we die and also when Jesus comes again. So we're going to read from uh, this letter that Paul wrote. We're going to read this section that Paul was writing to deal with this. And it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 13 to 18. So if you've got a Bible and you want to follow along as we read it, uh, please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Therefore, Paul says, encourage each other with these great words. Paul begins this section by saying, brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. The Christians in Thessalonica were obviously unsure what had happened to those in their church that had died. They were concerned, understandably. Paul uses this phrase, those who fall asleep, and he uses it in a figurative way. He doesn't mean that they were literally asleep. What he's simply saying is that when a Christian dies, it's as though they've fallen asleep. Because one day their physical bodies are going to come back to life. So their physical death is as temporary in eternal senses as, death, as sleep is. It's just like they've fallen asleep and in the morning they'll wake up again. And physical death in God's perspective, in an eternal perspective, is just as brief as that. He's simply saying that one day because their physical bodies will come back to life again, their physical death is just as temporary asleep. And Paul was keen to make sure that they understood and that they knew what had happened to those who had fallen asleep, those who had died. He wanted to make sure there was no confusion. He uses two phrases in this passage, and they mean the same thing. He talks about those who've fallen asleep, and he talks about the dead in Christ. So Paul isn't talking about dead people in general. This, is, this passage is focused on those that are dead in Christ. In other words, those who've died but had trusted in Jesus at some point before they died. That's what the phrase in Christ means. Paul uses it right throughout the Bible as shorthand. And it's simply shorthand for those who've put their faith and trust in Christ. So to be in Christ, to be in Jesus, to be in Christ, is to be someone who's trusted in Jesus and has committed our lives to him. So the dead in Christ, 
Paul writes about in this passage, are simply those who've trusted in Christ at some point before their death. And Paul didn't want the people in the church in Thessalonica to to grieve over those who died, those who were uh, dead in Christ, those who'd fallen asleep, in the way that non-Christians grieve. Paul wasn't saying that you shouldn't grieve. He's just saying your grief should be different. Yes, we will grieve, but our grief won't be the same or shouldn't be the same as those who have a hope and a certain hope in the resurrection of the dead. Our grief shouldn't be the same. We will have grief, but it shouldn't be the same as those who don't have Jesus as their Savior. The death of a fellow Christian is, of course, going to be sad, and we may well be devastated by that death, especially perhaps if it's uh, when someone's younger or, or, or if it's sudden or catches us unawares. My oldest brother, Neil, died aged 43 nine years ago this summer, and I was utterly devastated. My life fell apart. He was my big brother, he was my hero, he was my spiritual example, and to lose him to a horrible brain tumor was, was just devastating, it was awful, and it still pains me to this day, and it probably always will. But despite the grief that I felt and still feel, my grief and, our, and my family's grief wasn't and isn't a hopeless grief. There was and is still real grief. I was down at my sister-in-law's just this week and in the house and you know, I was sat in the chair where Neil, when, where Neil died, where the bed was, where he died in the living room. And it just brought back to me again the reality. This is where Neil used to sit and this is where he died. And, and the grief is still real, but it's a different kind of grief. It's not an empty, hopeless, pointless grief. It's a grief of, of, of certain hope that we have in the midst of all that horrible grief. And the reason why my grief is different in this situation with my brother is because my brother loved Jesus. He trusted in Jesus and he lived for Jesus. And so when he died, I have that certain knowledge that he went to be with Jesus. And so you see, Jesus brings certain hope. Write this down. Jesus brings certain hope in the midst of grief. Jesus brings an absolute rock solid, concrete, definite hope. In the midst of horrible, horrible grief, death is horrible, it is horrendous, it is death that comes from the enemy, from Satan, and all that comes from Satan is horrible. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy, Jesus says. Death is horrible, but in the midst of a horrible death, in the midst of grief, we have this not a vague hope, not a kind of cross my fingers and hope for the best kind of hope. This is a certain, definite, concrete hope that we have in Jesus. Because my brother had given his life to Jesus and had trusted in Jesus' death and his resurrection, I know that Neil is right now with the Lord Jesus in heaven, just as I know that Tom is with the Lord Jesus. And maybe right now they are together uh, comparing notes, and my brother will be kind of moaning about his little brother and, and you know, all that kind of stuff. Who knows? We don't know. But we know that they are both with Jesus right now. And that's a fantastic certain hope, isn't it? Not a kind of vague, well, I hope if I'm good enough and things kind of work out that maybe somebody might go to be with Jesus. But that certain concrete, definite hope that those we know who've trusted in Jesus are right now in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Paul said to be absent with, from the body and to be with the Lord is better by far. So we still grieve. We, the, the pain and the sense of loss is very real. And the, the grief we, we experience is very, very real. But our grief isn't a hopeless grief. It's not an empty grief. Because if the person that we have lost has trusted in Jesus, and because Jesus rose and conquered death, we can be certain that the one that we have lost, if they've trusted in Jesus, is with Jesus right now and will physically rise again when Jesus comes again. And that's a fantastic hope, isn't it? Yeah? Good. Glad you're with me in that. However, however, 
I do need to be really honest and, and, and clear at this point. This definite, this certain, this concrete hope in the future that Jesus gives is only true if the person who died has trusted in Jesus. And if the person grieving has trusted in Jesus. If either one haven't, then that, that hope isn't there. If, Neil, if, if, if my brother hadn't trusted in Jesus when he was alive, I would never see Neil, I would never see Neil again because I have trusted in Jesus. And if, if the opposite was true, if, if Neil had trusted in Jesus, but I hadn't trusted in Jesus, I would again never see my brother again. So these verses are a great comfort, but only between two people who have both trusted in the Lord Jesus and have given their lives to him. I can't offer you false hope. There is great hope in these verses, but we have to be clear about what the hope is. We can't offer false hope that everybody's going to go to heaven because that isn't true. Let's briefly look at Revelation chapter 19. Because this just brings a bit of clarity for us in this. Revelation chapter 19. Right at the end of the Bible and right at the end of time. Revelation chapter 19. And verses 11. Sorry, Revelation 20. Revelation 20 and verses 11 to 15. Revelation 20 and verses 11 to 15. This is John, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and he has this vision of the end of all things, the revelation of Jesus Christ, and this is what he sees at the end of time as all those that have lived on this earth throughout history are are stood before Jesus for judgment. John says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he or she was thrown into the lake of fire. It's really important that there's no confusion about what happens to those who don't believe in Jesus and don't surrender their lives to him. As verse 15 says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he or she was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a future event, the end of time. And we get our name written in the book of life, as it's called, by believing in Jesus and by surrendering to him. And if we reject Jesus, if we refuse to acknowledge him as our Lord and Savior, then Sadly, we're thrown into what the Bible calls this lake of fire. It's a place of conscious, eternal punishment for sin. And it's really vital that if you have yet to trust in Jesus this morning, that you understand what the Bible teaches on this subject this morning. Because only those who've trusted in Jesus and have surrendered their lives to him will go to heaven when they die. And so if you've yet to give your life to Jesus, I don't want to scare you into uh, trusting in Jesus, but it's important that you understand the truth this morning. If you've yet to give your life to Jesus, then can I challenge you and encourage you to do just that today so that you too can share in the promise this certain hope of eternal life that Jesus gives. So how is it possible then for Jesus to bring a certain hope? How can we be certain about the fate of those who've trusted in Jesus but have already died? How can we be certain about our own fate? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 14 gives us the answer. We believe, says Paul, that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. Right at the center, the very center of the Christian faith, 
is the belief that Jesus died, rose again, and is coming again. Three statements of absolute concrete truth. Jesus died, rose again, and is coming again. And when Jesus died on the cross, he took the place, the Bible says, of all those that put their faith and trust in him. And as he died on the cross, he took the punishment for for their sins, for our sins upon himself, so that they, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be made right with God. And having died, he, he rose again from the dead, conquering death once and for all. And because he physically rose again, all those that put their faith and trust in him will also physically rise from the dead. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are entrusting our lives and our deaths into the hands of Jesus and our futures beyond death into his hands. And because he conquered death, all those that are joined by faith to him, we also get to partake in the victory that Jesus won over death. So by faith, by being connected by faith, we get what Jesus has achieved. Just as Jesus destroyed death, we get that death in our lives destroyed. So write this down. Faith and trust in Jesus, it removes my sin and it also conquers my death. Faith and trust in Jesus removes my sin and it conquers my death. When we place our faith in Jesus, it's a bit like plugging a a plug into an electric socket and flicking the switch. And as we do that, just as the electricity flows through the plug into the electrical appliance as you switch it on, so when we place our faith and our trust in who Jesus is and what he's done for us, the result of Jesus' death and his resurrection flows into our lives and what Jesus has achieved is given to us and it's applied to us. God thinks of it as belonging to us. God applies the result of Jesus dying in our place. He applies the result of Jesus rising from the dead to us as well. So that we get the benefits of both of those things. So my sin is removed and I can have a relationship with God. But also my death is conquered because Jesus rose from the dead. I can never conquer death myself. I can never defeat my own death. But because Jesus conquered his death by faith in him, he gives me what he has done. And he can give that to each one of us today. So what happens then when someone who has trusted in Jesus dies? Well, as Paul says in verse 14, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. In other words, those who've died and who have trusted in him. Jesus is coming back. Jesus died, he rose again, and he returned to heaven. But he also promised to come back again. One of the earliest statements of belief outside of the Bible of the early church was the simple statement, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. One of the simplest statements, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. These three truths are foundation truths of the Christian faith. Jesus died, he rose again, and he's coming back again, and he could return at any moment. But for anyone who's trusted in Jesus in between his ascension to heaven and his second coming, but has then died, and let's face it, that's the majority of Christians throughout history, because we're 2,000 years after Jesus' uh, ascension into heaven, to all of those people who've died, who've gone before us, What exactly happens to them and what exactly has happened to them? Well, that's exactly the question that Paul was answering in this passage. When a person who has trusted in Jesus dies, their spirit, the Bible teaches us, immediately goes to be with Jesus in heaven. Their body goes into the ground as they are buried. Their physical body is asleep. But their spirit goes to be with Jesus in heaven at that moment. And they are fully alive, fully conscious, and enjoying the presence of the Lord enjoying the presence of God. They're not asleep, their bodies are asleep, but they, the real them, the real us, the spirit within us, is alive and in the presence of the Lord Jesus right now in heaven. 
And then when Jesus comes again, the spirits of all those who trusted in Jesus will come with Jesus. Those who've fallen asleep in him, Paul says, will come with Jesus. It seems that the Christians in Thessalonica were worried that those who had died would in some way miss out. But Paul wants to clear that up and make the, make the point that actually they get the place of greatest honor. Look at verse 15. He says, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. The first people to fully experience the benefits of what Jesus has achieved by dying and rising again are those who've trusted in him and yet have died, not those of us who are still alive. These folks who've already gone ahead of us, if you like, they get to experience this first. In verse 16, Paul says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And as Jesus comes down from heaven, he will bring with him the spirits of those who have trusted in Jesus but have already died. And as he does so, this loud command will go out from heaven. And the physical bodies that are in the ground will come back to life again. The loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, these are real events. And, but they're also symbolic in the sense that they demonstrate God's power and his authority over death. It's a command that cannot be, res- be ignored or, or resisted. These, vo- these bodies will come back up out of the ground. Their physical bodies will come out of the ground and be recreated as God once again breathes life into their physical bodies so that they're fully alive. And their physical bodies will be united once again with their spirits. And then they will go up into the air to meet Jesus as he returns from heaven. And then immediately after this has happened, we read these words. After that, we who are still alive and are left that's us right now, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Just as those who were physically dead receive new bodies and go up to meet their spirits and Jesus in the air as he descends to the earth, so to those of us who are physically alive, so if it was to happen right now, that's us, those of us who are physically alive will have our existing bodies transformed. And then we also will be suddenly caught up, snatched up, to meet Jesus in the air. And a passage that mirrors these verses, but actually gives us a little bit more detail about this, is 1 Corinthians 15. So if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to read quite a few of the verses there. 1 Corinthians 15. In this passage, Paul goes into a little bit more detail about exactly what happens to our resurrection bodies. We're going to read... um, Verses 35 to 37, and then just for the sake of time, we'll go down to verse 42, down to verse 48. So 1 Corinthians 15, we're cutting in in the middle of of Paul's argument, but we'll just focus on this concept here, the resurrection body. So verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15, but someone may ask, how are the dead raised? And he's talking here about the dead in Christ, okay, those who've trusted in Jesus. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. And then down to 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, but it's raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, he's referring there to Jesus, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. 
The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man, that's Jesus, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the, peri- the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, in other words, we won't all die, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Whether we are physically alive or physically dead when Jesus comes back, it makes no real difference. Paul says in verse 51 of 1 Corinthians 15, we will not all sleep. In other words, we will not all die. Some of us will still be alive when Jesus returns, but we will all be changed. So whether we are asleep, our physical bodies are dead, and our spirits are with Jesus, or whether we are physically alive, it makes no difference. We will all be changed. And that will take place in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. So Paul is saying that we won't all sleep. In other words, we won't all die, because some of us will still be alive when Jesus comes again. But we will all be changed. Whether we have brand new bodies, because we were physically dead, or whether, we, or whether our bodies have just been changed, because we are still alive, we will all be changed and transformed. In verse 49 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, And just as we've borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. We've all borne the likeness of the earthly man. We're all physically descended from Adam. So we've all descended from him. We all bear his likeness in some way or other. But when Jesus comes, and when we are changed, we will then, Paul says, bear the likeness of the man from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our bodies will be transformed so that they'll be like Jesus' body after he rose from the dead. Jesus still looked like Jesus. He was recognizable. They knew it was Jesus. He was still flesh and blood. He said, look, touch me, feel me. He ate. He drank with them. He ate breakfast on the beach with them. They could see his physical scars. He said to Thomas, put your your hand in, in my scars. Jesus was physical. He was real. They knew who he was. But there was something different about Jesus' physical body. After the resurrection, he had a glorious body. There was something indefinable, something other about Jesus' body after the resurrection. And that's the kind of bodies that we will have. We don't know fully what that will look like. But we get a clue as we look at, the, as we look at Jesus in between his resurrection and his ascension. That's the kind of bodies that we will have. Paul writes this in Philippians 3, 20 to 21. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. When Jesus returns, he will transform our lowly bodies. And we're all too aware of how our bodies are lowly, aren't they? They, they don't do what we want them to do. They, as we get older, they start to dis- sort of malfunction and we have to get glasses and 
operations and tablets and treatment and all the rest of it, our lowly bodies are transformed so that they will be like his glorious body. We will still look the same. You'll still recognize me. I will still recognize you. I will still, I suspect, have this big nose. Sadly, I don't think that's part of the deal that when I become a Christian, this gets changed. We'll still look the same. We'll still recognize each other. We'll still know each other. We'll still have physical bodies, just like Jesus, Jesus did after the resurrection. But our bodies will have an added dimension to them. And our bodies will no longer be subject to sin and disease. And having been changed and transformed in a, in a split second, in the twinkling of an eye, we will then be caught up together along with those who were dead in Christ to meet the Lord in the air, the Bible says. And so we will be with him forever. Now, the Bible does go into detail about what happens after this, but that's not the subject of this passage. If you want to know more about that, then come back next year. Hopefully come back before then, but come back next year when we're doing 2 Thessalonians, and we'll get into that a little bit in 2 Thessalonians. But the focus of this passage is threefold. Firstly, it tells us that Jesus is coming again. Secondly, it tells us what happens to those who've trusted in Jesus but have already died. And thirdly, it tells us what happens to those of us who've trusted in Jesus but are still alive when Jesus comes again. At some point after Jesus comes again, Jesus will then judge the living and the dead who throughout history have rejected him, as we read in in Revelation 20 there. And they'll be cast into what the Bible calls this lake of fire, along with Satan and death. And then God will destroy this world and create a whole new world. A world without Satan, a world without sin, a world populated by those who have trusted in Jesus. Revelation 21, verses uh, 1 and 3 to 4 says this, or, or puts it like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The Bible says that God will create a new heaven, a new earth, and he will live with his people, but it will be a world without Satan and without sin. Be a literal, physical earth with literal, physical people. We won't be floating around in the clouds, dressed in white with harps. That's a kind of nonsense from medieval paintings. Okay? Forget all that that you've seen in paintings. It's got nothing to do with heaven. The new heavens, the new earth will be a literal physical world just like this one, but without sin and without all the effects that sin has caused in this world. And we will live and we will work and we will function and we will serve God forever in that new world. Now, we don't know exactly what that will look like. There's clues throughout the Bible. What we do know is that it will be a world without sin. A world and an existence never again to be troubled by sin. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more mourning, no more crying or pain. Why? Because sin will have been removed from the world and Satan will be in the lake of fire for all eternity. So write this down. When Jesus comes again, there'll be no more sin. There'll be no more suffering and no more death for those who have trusted in him. When Jesus comes again, there'll be no more sin. Sin will be gone. And the fruit, the result of sin is suffering and ultimately death. And these three things are removed forever for those who have trusted in Jesus. It's sin that causes tears. It's sin that causes death. It's sin that causes crying and mourning and pain, isn't it? And there'll be no more sin. All of those things will be gone. Max Lucado has written these words. 
Because of sin, you've snapped at the ones you love and argued with the ones you cherish. You've felt ashamed, guilty, bitter. You have ulcers, sleepless nights, cloudy days, and a pain in the neck. But you won't have those in heaven. Because of sin, the young are abused and the elderly forgotten. Because of sin, God is cursed and drugs are worshipped. Because of sin, the poor have less and the affluent want more. Because of sin, babies have no daddies and husbands have no wives. But in heaven, sin will have no power. In fact, sin will have no presence. There will be no sin. Sin aside, a thousand heartaches and broken a million promises. Your addiction can be traced back to sin. Your mistrust can be traced back to sin. Bigotry, robbery, adultery, all because of sin. But in heaven, all of this will end. Can you imagine a world without sin? If so, you can imagine heaven. No wonder that Paul closes this section then with these words in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. As I read this passage, it comforts and it encourages me to know that I will see my brother Neil again. And I'll see Tom again. And I will see them in a world without sin. And I pray that you too this morning will be comforted to know that if you have trusted in Jesus, you will see those who have also trusted in Jesus but have died, those whose bodies have fallen asleep. The band are going to come and lead us in a final song in a moment. And as we sing this song, that I would encourage you to reach out to Jesus in faith this morning. If there are people in your life that you know have yet to receive the Lord Jesus as their Savior, then bring them to Jesus in prayer, in faith, in this, in this moment. And pray that they will be saved so that they will be part of this great event in the future. If this morning you know that you haven't trusted in Jesus yourself and you know that you haven't yet received that free gift of eternal life, then can I challenge you and encourage you, plead with you, implore with you to take that step and give your life to Jesus so that when Jesus comes again, you're ready to meet him in the air. I'm going to pray and then the band are going to come and lead us in one final song. Father, we worship you this morning. Lord Jesus, we worship you that you have conquered sin and death. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus. We, we praise you. We thank you that those of us who have trusted in you this morning can, can, can declare that our death has been put into your hands, that we can trust you with our lives, our death, and our future, with our eternity. That one day, if we are still alive, we'll be caught up to meet you in the air if you are returned. And yet if we're to face death, we know that we can face death knowing that our death is in your hands. That we will go immediately into your presence and our bodies will one day in the future be resurrected. Father, we worship you for these phenomenal truths. We thank you that in that new heaven, that new earth that you will create, there'll be no more sin, no more death, no more crying, no more pain. So we look forward to that day. We want to encourage one another with these words. Father, we live in a world in the meantime that is scarred by sin and our lives are scarred by sin. Help us to have faith in you and keep looking to you day by day as we look with one eye open, looking up into the sky for the return of Jesus. We pray that we will one day, we pray that in our lifetime, we pray that today we would see the King of glory as he bursts through the clouds of heaven. And so we pray with John as he would close the Bible. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.